The following sermon is by Boyd Johnson, pastor of Treasuring Christ Church in Athens, Georgia. More information about Treasuring Christ Church can be found at tccathens.org. In recent years, there has been immense pressure in our society to embrace and celebrate a perversion of marriage that is contrary to God's will. This perversion was, as you know, virtually enshrined into law in the United States by the Supreme Court decision in 2015. That decision wasn't the beginning or the end of the assault on the sanctity of marriage, but it was a significant marker of our culture's descent into depravity. Since that time, we've only descended lower and more quickly. What has surprised many observers is how readily and broadly this redefinition of marriage has been embraced. Sadly, even among many who attend church. But it's not so surprising when you realize that long before marriage was redefined, it was devalued. One pastor has said there has never been a generation whose view of marriage is high enough. That's undoubtedly true. But surely our generation is near the bottom. For a long time now, marriage has not been held in high esteem. In a culture of promiscuity, marriage limits your options. In a culture of self-absorption, marriage limits your ambitions. In a culture of independence, marriage limits your freedoms. It's not uncommon to hear people question even the point of marriage. They say, why do I need a piece of paper to love whoever I want to love? Why can't I live with whoever I want to live with? Why can't I move on from a relationship when I no longer find it fulfilling? Why would I follow outdated expectations of for my life. Who is anyone to tell me how to define my relationships? I'm especially concerned that esteem for marriage is not what it should be within the church at large. Marriages among professing believers ought to be the most loving and most exemplary. But too often they're not. I believe that one of the reasons for this is that many Christians have a shallow understanding of what marriage is. Unless we know why God created marriage in the first place, we won't esteem marriage as we ought. Many believers assume that the reason for marriage is companionship or intimacy or childbearing. But there's nothing distinctively Christian about those reasons. Even unbelievers want from marriage companionship, intimacy, and children. Those can be wonderful blessings in marriage, but God's Word teaches us there is yet a greater purpose for marriage. This purpose should govern everything about our marriages and should motivate a greater Love between spouses. 
It's this grand purpose that we must know if we're to esteem marriage as we should and if we're to have the kinds of marriages that God intended. And so to that end, we turn to Ephesians 5, which reveals the most profound of all reasons for marriage. This is the third week of our series on Christ-centered marriages from chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. And so far, we've been learning about the God-ordained duties expected of Spirit-filled husbands and wives. And now we come to the end of the passage where Paul restates those duties and also tells us a mystery about marriage. Never before revealed until Paul penned these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Our focus will be on verses 31 to 33, but I want to read the entire passage to remind us of what we've learned and to give us context. And so Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of His body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. All that remains of our study of this passage is verses 31 to 33. And perhaps the best place to begin is at the end. In verse 33, Paul closes his instructions to husbands and wives with a final reminder about how they must relate to one another. He writes, however... Let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now the verse opens with the word however, or in some translations, nevertheless. In this case, Paul doesn't use that word to contradict something he has said previously. Rather, he uses that word to draw this section to a close and emphasize what husbands and wives must do in the marital relationship. Here at the end, Paul summarizes his instructions and he reiterates the essential commands to each. As for husbands, they must love their wives. This is the primary duty that husbands owe their wives. Whatever else a husband does, he must love his wife. Just as the second great command says to love your neighbor as yourself, husbands must love their wives. In fact, according to verse 25, husbands must love their wives as Christ loved the church. Last week, we learned what that means. We found that 
Husbands must love their wives with a sacrificial love, a sanctifying love, and a supporting love. That's how Christ loved the church, and so husbands must love their wives in the same way. As for wives, verse 33 says, they must respect their husbands. Wives must recognize that God placed husbands in the position of authority in the home. And therefore, they must respect their husbands in their leadership. And according to verse 22, submit to them as to the Lord. Now, we studied both of those commands in detail in the past week, so I won't repeat what I've already said. But for the rest of our time, I want us to focus on verses 31 and 32. It's in these verses that we learn what marriage really is, why it exists, and what marriage is really about. Here we learn the grand purpose of marriage and why we must esteem it far more than we do. In this passage, we find two truths about marriage that are foundational to understanding the true meaning of marriage. If our marriages would be all that God intended, we must know, embrace, and defend these two truths. The first foundational truth about marriage that we must know, embrace, and defend is that the Creator of marriage is God. This simple truth has life-changing implications. The creator of marriage is God. Paul alludes to the fact that God created marriage in verse 31, where he quotes from the Old Testament. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, to be sure, Paul doesn't in so many words say God is the creator of marriage, but if we understand where this quote comes from and what it means, then we'll understand that this is a picture of the marital union that God creates. This quote comes from Genesis 2, which is a very significant chapter on marriage. Why? Because that's the chapter that tells us the story of how marriage began. And so let's briefly study the genesis of marriage by turning in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis, as you may know, is the book of beginnings. It tells us how the world began, how man began, how sin began, how nations, including Israel, began, and so on. And chapter 1 outlines the story of the creation of the world. God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. It was on the sixth day that God created man. Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. After the first man and woman were created, God declared His work of creation very good. We read that in verse 31 of chapter 1. God saw everything that He had made, And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. All was very good because the world was complete and perfect and without sin. 
just as God had ordained it. Now, chapter 2 expands upon the creation account of chapter 1 by focusing on the creation of man. You could say that chapter 2 fills in the details of the broader outline of chapter 1. And it's in this chapter that we learn that when God created man in His image, male and female, He didn't create the first man and first woman at the same time. He created them on the same day, but not the same time. God created Adam first. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there He put the man whom He had formed. Now this first man was named Adam. Or in Hebrew, Adam. Which means man. But when Adam was created, notice he was put in the garden among the rest of creation alone, without any other person to accompany him. Adam's initial responsibility, according to verse 15, was to work and keep the garden. But as Adam was alone in the garden, the Lord spoke again. He said in verse 18, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now by the end of the sixth day, God would call all the creation very good as we've already seen. But before the day was done, there was something not good about it. That's not to say that there's something bad about creation. It just means that the day wasn't complete and there was something not yet created, that Adam needed. That something was a someone. The man needed a woman. But that's not exactly how the story goes. Look at verses 19 and 20. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. Before God created a woman, it seems He paraded all the beasts and birds before Adam. And as they came, Adam gave names to the animals as a demonstration of His authority over them. But when they had all come and gone, Adam was still alone without a suitable companion from among all the rest of creation. The end of verse 20 says, But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. None was like him, so God formed a suitable companion from him. Verses 21 and 22. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman 
and he brought her to the man. That word rib could be translated sides. It's actually plural. From the sides of Adam, God created the first woman and then closed up Adam's side with flesh in the world's first healing. Now, this doesn't mean that men have one less rib than women. Biologically, that's just not true. But from Adam, Eve was created to be like him. And at last, there was a helper for Adam. When he awoke from his sleep, he didn't have to go searching for his bride. Look again at the end of verse 22. God brought her to the man. Understand the significance of that action. At the beginning of a wedding, the bride enters, accompanied by her father. And the question comes, who gives this woman to be wed with this man? And the father says, I do. In the case of Eve, the father of the bride was God Himself. And He gave her to the man to be united in marriage. Adam recognized the significance of the moment right away. He said in verse 23, this at last, at last, after he's seen all the animals, all the beasts, all the birds, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Literally, that's true. I was exclaiming how much of a likeness she has. Far different than the animals. This is not an animal. This is one like me. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He was ecstatic. Finally, out of all creation, there was one like him. And we must not overlook the fact that he named her too, which indicates his authority and responsibility in the relationship. But the main point is to see that as the two came together, a new relationship was formed that set the pattern for all marriages. Verse 24 says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, Adam and Eve, obviously, didn't have biological fathers and mothers. But the word therefore, that begins verse 24, draws a conclusion for us based on what God did for them. Their union was to be the divinely ordained pattern for all marriage to come. In Adam's case, from the one came two, and the two became one. A dramatic picture of what marriage is. This union of the first man and the first woman is in fact the climax, climax of the creation account in Genesis 2. But their union was the pattern of God's design for all marriage. The design is that a man leaves his biological family he holds fast to his wife to form a new family. 
and the two, male and female, become one flesh in marriage. So the story of marriage in Genesis 2 clearly demonstrates that God is the creator of marriage. God made Adam a helper. God gave Eve away as the bride. God set the pattern for marriage. God formed the one flesh union. God did it all. He is the creator of marriage from beginning to end. Marriage is from God. Now, as I said earlier, this simple truth has life-changing implications. What are the implications? Well, let me briefly give you two. First, since God is the creator of marriage, He defines what marriage is. And He alone. Marriage was His idea. And He's the one who established the pattern. Therefore, only He can determine what marriage is and whatever doesn't fit His pattern for marriage, whatever else it is, it's not marriage. So no executive, no legislature, no court can ever overrule the decree of God and redefine marriage as something contrary to God's ordained pattern. If it's not one man and one woman, it isn't marriage. Calling some other relationship a marriage doesn't make it so. It's a lie. It's a farce. Whatever else they call marriage is only so-called marriage, but not true marriage. So we hear in our culture about so-called same-sex marriage. But we Christians dare not call it or recognize it as actual marriage. We must not bow to our culture and call a sinful relationship marriage when we know that it's a lie and offends God. To not tell the truth would be unloving. Calling so-called same-sex marriage a marriage doesn't build a bridge to the Gospel. It undermines the Gospel because it's a bridge of lies. Now, a second implication of the truth that God is the Creator of marriage is that since God defines marriage, He also governs marriage. That means He has the right to tell men and women what their roles are in marriage and we ought to gladly submit to His good and wise purposes. He has said that husbands are to lovingly lead the home and wives are to submit to their leadership. And so we should obey Him and trust Him as we strive to carry out His will. Who are we to tell the Creator of marriage how it ought to be done? Now certainly more could be said, but we need to return to Ephesians 5 to finish the passage and see the second truth about marriage. The second foundational truth about marriage that we must know and embrace and defend is that the meaning of marriage is Christ and the church. The meaning of marriage is Christ and the church. 
Paul writes in verse 32, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, throughout this section, Paul has made the relationship between Christ and the church the standard for how husbands and wives ought to relate to one another. We've seen that again and again. For example, he said in verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Likewise, in verse 24, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands. And in verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So in our marriage relationships, we should look to the loving relationship between Christ and the church as a guide for how we are to love one another. That's a weighty truth that calls us to the highest of standards. But, in verse 32, Paul says something weightier still. It's not just that the love between Christ and the church makes a good example for a loving marriage. Rather, Paul is telling us that long ago, when God created marriage on the sixth day of creation, marriage was patterned after Christ's future love for the church. Paul says this one flesh union described in verse 31 is a profound mystery. It's a mystery, he says, that refers or corresponds to Christ and the church. That creative act, the creative act of marriage, was only a pattern after an already foreordained love between Christ and the church. In Paul's usage of the word, a mystery is something once unknown by man, but now revealed by God. That's how Paul repeatedly uses this word, including earlier in this letter, a mystery is something previously unknown to man, but revealed by God. What had never been revealed to man before Paul wrote this verse was that marriage was actually created in the first place as a portrait of Christ's covenant love for His church before there even was a church. In other words, marriage was created to be a living parable. The husband plays the role of Christ. The wife plays the role of the church. Their love for one another portrays the love between Christ and the church. It's a living parable. Now the implications for this are staggering. One theologian who has who wrote before he passed away a few years ago extensively on the subject of marriage comments on this verse. Marriage was designed by God from the beginning to be a picture or parable of the relationship between Christ and the church. Back when God was planning what marriage would be like, He planned it for this great purpose. 
it would give a beautiful earthly picture of the relationship that would someday come about between Christ and the church. This was not known to people for many generations. And that is why Paul can call it a mystery. But now in the New Testament age, Paul reveals this mystery and it is amazing. Indeed it is. So the ultimate meaning of marriage is not companionship. It's not intimacy. It's not childbearing. No, as John Piper writes, the highest meaning and the most ultimate purpose of marriage is to put the covenant relationship of Christ and His church on display. What's at stake in your marriage is how this sacred relationship is displayed to the world. And so we dare not lie about the relationship between Christ and the church by how we treat one another in the marriage. Husbands, you must love your wife because what's at stake is a portrayal of how Christ loves the church. Wives, you must respect and submit to your husband because what's at stake is a portrayal of how the church submits itself to Christ. Much is at stake in how we live these marriages. Is it any wonder then that marriage is under assault in our world? If this is the meaning of marriage, and it is, then it's no wonder it's under such attack since marriage is meant to portray the loving relationship between Christ and the church, then of course Satan would attack marriage and pervert its meaning. You could have saw that coming. He would do anything to undermine the beautiful picture of Christ and His bride. He could do anything. Including deceive a whole nation. But we know that the meaning of marriage is Christ and the church. And so we've seen these two fundamental truths about marriage that all Christians must know, must embrace, and must defend. First, the Creator of marriage is God. Second, the meaning of marriage is Christ and the church. Therefore, we have a great responsibility to uphold the significance of marriage. All of us do, whether we're married or not. We have a responsibility in how we think about marriage. How we talk about marriage. How we pursue marriage. And how we live out marriage. Our children, who live in a confusing and evil age, need to see the beauty of godly marriages. They need to see it not just so that they have examples for when they get married someday, but also because they need to know what's true about the everlasting love of Christ and His church. That's what's at stake before these children here. 
If you destroy your marriage while part of this church, it would be better for you to hang a millstone around your neck and be drowned than to lead one of these little children astray. Every Sunday, this beautiful parable, this beautiful portrait of Christ and the church is being lived out before these children and in your homes. Unbelievers, too, in our lives need to see the beauty of godly marriages. They don't know Christ and may not come to church, but our marriages can be a witness to something true about Christ and His church that would perhaps intrigue them to ask questions and give us an opportunity to bear witness with our words. And for these reasons and more, may we be a church filled with God-honoring, Christ-centered, Spirit-filled marriages that are a beautiful testimony to our children, to this unbelieving world, and to each other. Will you bow your heads with me in prayer? So Father, help us to know more deeply, embrace more securely, and defend more courageously these foundational truths that we've now seen in Your Word. Father, we thank You that You created marriage in the first place. That You gave even sinful man the opportunity to have this companionship and intimacy and childbearing. And yet we know that only in a God-honoring, Christ-centered, Spirit-filled marriage can the portrayal of Christ's love and the church's love be most clearly seen, be represented. And so, Father, find us faithful, we ask. For marriages here this morning that are strained by sin, that are at odds with one another, that spouses are at odds with one another, that seem like they're on the last thread. Lord, I pray that You'd be merciful to them and help bring about reconciliation and peace so that the marriage would be stronger than it is now and that it would one day be a true parable of these wonderful truths we've seen in Your Word. And for all marriages, Father, we pray that we would grow stronger. There isn't a marriage here that couldn't grow stronger, and so we ask for Your Spirit's help. Help us to repent of our sins. Help us to seek, eagerly seek forgiveness of one another. Help us to forsake anger. And help us to draw close to one another. Father, we realize what's at stake. And so again, Find us faithful. Bless our church. And may we bless you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Treasuring Christ Church in Athens, Georgia. 
Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not alter the content in any way without permission. Treasuring Christ Church exists to spread a passion for the fame of Christ's name in Athens and around the world. We invite you to visit Treasuring Christ Church online at tccathens.org. There you'll find other resources available to you and information about our upcoming gatherings.